I need to stay hydrated after what I went through. Because listen, I thought before I start this baking a mystery, I might eat four jalapeno cream cheese filled Takis. No, four Taki jalapeno. Four Taki cream cheese filled jalapenos. And I ate them all. And then I went to the bathroom and something scarier took place in there than what I'm about to tell you guys about right now. Happy Halloween if you guys are listening to this on Spooktober Day. Spooky Halloween Day. I've even dressed up as my favorite costume. It's not Halloween today. It was, um, it's gonna be in a couple of days. Welcome to Baking a Mystery Spooktober Edition. So today episode is going to be about a book that I recently read called The Patient. Now this is written by an author by the name of Jasper DeWatt, I think, um, something like that. It literally says like D-E and then space something. <laughs> it's a fancy name, okay? Imagine if I was just like, my name's Stephanie Dessou. Oh, I sound classier already. The <laughs> Stephanie Def an idiot. It's a very interesting one because it was actually written through a series of Reddit posts, I believe on the no sleep thread before it was taken down from Reddit and then later published, compiled all up into one and I think there was like revisions and there was editing done and then it was released as a horror fiction book. And I, I mean it's a tiny little red book. I thought I would get through it in like maybe max two hours, something like that, but I ended up spending a good amount of time on it because I wanted to really just suck in and digest every little page that I could think of. This is about a mental institution, a state-run mental institution in Connecticut, and a lot of the names in the book are actually um, kind of taken away, so I kind of made up like the rest of my own names. Like they literally put like Dr. G and then Dash, because the whole Reddit thing is supposed to be about the fact that this is a real story. So it's make you make you feel like you're reading something that actually happened, almost like a blog post type, type of way of writing right so some of these names are going to be a little bit inaccurate but the rest of it i'm trying my best and also the ending i'm going to tell you about the ending at the end but i'm going to alter some shit there because sometimes you read a book and the ending you're like no i'm just going to actually stop the book three chapters early because i don't know what you wrote as an ending but that's not how it's ending in my brain okay that's not that's not the life i choose to live so that's what's going to be happening in this episode and it's about a mental institution where there's a patient and weird things are happening to that patient any doctor any nursing staff any orderly anyone that comes across that patient for lengthy periods of time somehow ends up killing themselves. So it almost seems like this patient is in this mental institution for, I mean, there's no diagnosis on this patient even. But what happens is people say that his madness is almost contagious and people that are around him for a while start to go mad. So this person is a doctor. He's a psychiatrist. His name is Dr. Parker. And he starts his entries March 15th of 2008. And he says, listen, this happened in the early two, 2000s and it's been a lot of years since then so I feel like I'm finally comfortable enough to tell you about some of the horrors that I've witnessed inside of this hospital. I feel like to divulge in some of the specific details would be bad business, ethically corrupt and you know I've got a fiance. His fiance's name is Jocelyn and she was at the time in the early 2000s she was studying to get a doctorate's degree so she's a very intelligent person. She was getting a PhD or whatever. So they're engaged and he was going through like graduating from like Ivy League medical schools. Like this is cream of the crop top 
did I just say cream of the crop tops? <laughs> this is the titty top of the crop tops. Like he had the best education and he graduated and he was like, I can't wait to go to Connecticut so that I could be with my boo thing, my little engaged fiance, and I'm gonna start applying for jobs there, right? So he gets to Connecticut and to everybody's surprise, he decided to not apply for like those fancy prestigious hospitals you know what i'm talking about like the cedar sinai's of the world the fucking kaiser permanentes bits he decided not to apply for those positions but for a state-run hospital which a lot of people thought were weird because usually state-run mental institutions are incredibly underfunded incredibly under well kept overbooked i mean it's overflowing with patients they don't have enough staff it's really not a place that an ivy league doctor usually goes to like it's not a place that you're gonna make a lot of money you're working for the government government essentially so you're not gonna get paid a lot and so all of his colleagues and they were trying to talk him out of it they were like don't do it like i've got the hookup at cedar sinai i can get you in easy breezy you know cover girl this is easy with connections american dream woo um and he was like no i mean i don't mind like it's only for a little bit and he kind of had this weird this weird like attraction to those state-run hospitals so when he was 10 years old his mom was actually admitted into a really state-run hospital and so for some reason he feels like at least one time in his life that he wants to work for a place like that to kind of see if he can change things around like i mean i'm gonna be honest the whole book he even knows this at the end because he's writing this after everything happened he knows that during that time in his life he truly believed that he could change the world with his ivy league degree he was like you know what i'm an ivy league graduate so obviously i can go into a state-run hospital point out all the things wrong and how to fix them easy breezy and i've just saved lives and changed the world but it doesn't exactly work like that so he was like you know what i'm gonna go to this state-run hospital and i'm gonna change some so when he was 10 years old, I gotta give you some background on his mummy. So when he was 10 years old, his mom was actually found by his dad um, in the kitchen in the middle of the night. And she had taken a steak knife and she was like carving her arm with it. And when her dad, his dad was so alarmed and was like, sweetie, like, what are you doing? She turned around and she said that the big insect demon had put the screams of like the damned, like the people in hell into her ear. And the only way that those insects, like those little maggots that are now living in her ear would leave is through her blood. And so she had to cut herself open to get those maggots out. Out. and so she was taken away into a hospital and for the longest time when this happened like his dad would tell him like oh your mom's like on a girl's trip like your mom's with her grandma like her, your mom's a little bit busy and so finally he was like dad i'm putting my foot down i'm a grown man i'm 10 and uh i need to see my mom and so his dad was like okay i don't think i can hide it from you anymore so he grabs his little hand puts him in the car in the back seat because you ain't a grown man you're 10 and so he's in the back seat they drive to the state-run hospital and they get out and he said that it was just a shit show like it looked nasty it smelled nasty looked nasty none of the staff like the staff looked like they were gonna give you depression instead of curing your depression like that's what he said the vibe was like they all looked annoyed at anyone that would breathe near them and there were just like patients rummaging through the hallways like staring at everyone all very creepily and he's 10 so obviously he's not woke he's not like oh mental health awareness he's like what's happening right and so he walks in and they get led into a room now his dad decided to wait outside 
and he walks into the room and immediately he is hit with this pungent smell of urine and blood and he's like what the fork and he looks over at his mom who's hunched over in the corner and she had made this like makeshift shiv out of like you know when you're in prison you like make some up that looks like a knife right and she was bleeding and she turned around and she was able to register that this was her son and so she said parker Parker, baby, why don't you help mommy? I can't get these damn maggots out. And she started to look at him, and he looked terrified. He looked so scared. And maybe she also registered that, oh my God, my son is scared. And so she decided to crawl over to him while singing him like a lullaby and tried to give him a hug. Crawl? Yeah, like she was just kind of like crawling, like it's okay, like because she was on the ground and I think she was bleeding a lot. So it must have been painful to get back up. So she was like crawling to him like, it's okay, baby. And like singing him a lullaby. Now in her head, obviously she thought that she was comforting her son. In his head, this was like the biggest nightmare ever so he ran out of there and he was crying to his dad and he said that was the day that he decided to become a psychiatrist because that's just not his mom like that's not the mom that he knew for 10 years that's just not who she is she just needs help and then she'll be the true mom you know like mental illness is not his mom and so he was like i'm gonna become a psychiatrist and help people like my mom well his mom ended up passing away so he didn't really get to help her and so he finally gets a job at what he just calls a Connecticut State Hospital. He doesn't want to give the name because obviously he doesn't want to get sued because he's he's about to divulge in some crazy, just patient shit. Like you don't get to talk about stuff like that as a doctor. So he said, it's just CSH. That's what we're going to call it. And his first day after the interview, he said it kind of seemed doomed almost in retrospect. Obviously in Connecticut, apparently Connecticut weather is ass and it's always raining it's always like i mean i feel like the whole east coast is always kind of like weathersome like the weather is weird over there i grew up in the east coast i could say that without getting canceled georgia weather is wild i remember one time we went to a school play and then there was like a tornado so we all dispersed into the rooms and like we were in a tornado lockdown at night like 7 p.m because we came to watch the school play like who <laughs> this is weird no you don't think that's weird <laughs> That's a weird memory I have. I think we were there for like hours. And then you were just chilling with the teachers and everyone was like, if I wanted to be locked in school, I would have come during the school day. Well, I came to watch a play. It was like Romeo and Juliet. And now nobody's making out. Well, actually, a lot of people made out. <laughs> okay, continuing on. So the weather was out. Like, as he was driving to his first day on the job, it was thunderstorming, it was raining, he almost got run off the side of the road. Like, it was bad. And once he got to the parking lot, I mean, this hospital was a ginormous hospital, which is really bad, considering that it was incredibly underfunded. Like, his salary itself just told you, this is an underfunded hospital. Everything about it just looked like it was going to cause you to go crazy instead of help you not be crazy. It just looked really bad. So as he's walking in, to the building i mean this is the type of place where people go when they are mentally and physically and financially like at the end of the road like you don't necessarily like you don't check yourself in here if you have disposable income like you would probably check yourself into like a beverly hills rehab or something like that i can't believe there's a rehab there i'm getting rambly anyways this is not the type of place that you would go if you had the luxury to go to a private institution what <laughs> You want to start calling your grandma Sue? <laughs> <laughs>
I'm like back in my day <laughs> back in my day <laughs> anyways so this is just gonna be a lot of patience in there but he still was determined to make the best of it so he walks in on his first day all of the nurses are just busy they're overbooked there's too many patients and he's in the elevator and he kind of starts reminiscing about a lot of patients and about delusions and stuff like that you know one of his most recent patients that wasn't in this hospital but his last one where he did his residency he um he had this strong belief because they lived near a campus a very nice private college campus and this old man truly believed that this campus there was this secret club you know which makes sense like this boarding school and secret club of all these elite students and they would rent out this local restaurant and in the basement of that local restaurant they were cooking up a giant like they were creating a a Frankenstein and this Frankenstein was gonna be a cannibal it was a human eating giant and when people asked like how do you know that for sure he said you know my girlfriend got eaten by this giant but the truth is, according to his records, that he had a psychotic break and killed his girlfriend. And so now his mind was like making up this story to protect himself. And then you had another person who truly believed that a cartoon character that he watched at night was obsessed with him, was in love with him, and they were going to be together. But then as the show progressed, they never got to be together. Like he didn't just appear on screen and they didn't get married. And so he found out the artist of that cartoon and started stalking that person because he felt like, they needed to know and not make sure that they were separated. It was like the artist who was like, no, you guys can't be together. And so he started stalking that person. And the one thing that he's learned from all of this is that you never tell the reality to someone who has delusions. First of all, it's never going to work. And second of all, they're usually going to get incredibly angry. That's like their immediate response is just anger. So you just don't do that. And then just like his last hospital, every hospital has one patient that nobody can help that they just don't know how to explain it there's always that one patient that even the doctors have given up on they just kind of medicate that person they just don't really know how to diagnose him they don't know what's wrong with them how they got that wrong how to fix them they just don't know like there's always that one case in every hospital where everyone just kind of throws their hands up like we don't know what the f do and in this hospital, it was a patient by the name of Joe. So what he knows about Joe so far from his research of asking the nurses and like the receptionist and stuff, that he is this patient that's undiagnosable in this hospital. He actually was admitted to this hospital when he was six years old, and he's been here for over 20 years, two decades. None of the doctors during 20 plus years could diagnose him. They call him someone where his just symptoms keep changing. The minute that you think maybe he has a sociopathic tendency, his symptoms change and he becomes someone else and they don't know what to do about it. The minute that they think that they have a diagnosis, it's something else. And all of the doctors who get close to diagnosing him somehow end up killing themselves before they diagnose him. And so obviously a young, bright Ivy League doctor in a hospital of just regular school doctors he's like i got this one i got this one your tuition was free my tuition was like 100k a year okay 100k a year i can fix him i, I can spend two minutes with him showing my degree fixed 
I'm gonna fix him. And so he came in and he was like, you know what? That seems like a fun case to have. So he already kind of came in with the, the mindset that he was gonna help this forker. And he's like, I just need to find some people to get him on my patient list. I need to ask the boss or whatever. But that first day, that first day, he realized it was not gonna be easy. Like anybody that you asked about Joe, they all just were like, you don't wanna know. Like even the staff, he didn't have a doctor right now. So all of the patients were assigned a doctor except for Joe. So the only people who interacted with Joe were the orderlies who came in and cleaned his room, changed his sheets, and maybe take out some food and bring him some food. And then the nurse, one nurse who would administer his medicine, that was it. He had no doctor. He never had any therapy sessions. He never came to group therapy. He was placed at the end of the hall so he wouldn't interact with any of the other patients because he was deemed to be that dangerous. So then the minute that he starts asking around, everyone's like, dude, it's your first day. Like, calm your tits. He's literally dangerous. Every doctor he's had has almost killed themselves. You don't know what you're talking about. And so he's like, okay, I'm just going to wait a little bit. So a couple weeks go by and he's kind of like cruising into his role. And honestly, he was killing it. Like he was people, the nurse, the nurses were calling him a child prodigy they were like who brought you to this hospital because none of the other doctors like they don't even care but like you care you care and so nessie she's the head nurse she's the head in charge she's been working there since the 70s it is now the early 2000s it's been 30 plus years and she knows everybody's schedule she knows who she knows even the doctors listen to her do you know how much disrespect nurses go through from the doctors so much how do i know this tiktok can't be a lie (laughs) (laughs) yeah apparently doctors like completely dismiss nurses because they're like you're not a doctor i'm gonna change my first name to doctor and i'm gonna be like you're not a doctor doctor read my chart I'm a doctor. I don't know what's going on today. I don't know. <laughs> Grandma? Grandma? Did you your medicine today? I don't. And so Nessie, she was the head bits in charge. And she was the one nurse that was in charge with administering Joe's medicine, right? And so he kind of like weaseled his way into the lunchroom. Nessie was there. And she has this tendency to like the more angrier she is that day, the tighter her hair is tied. And today it was like loosely put down. So he was like, today's a good day. Today's a good day to ask her so he rolls up to Nessie and he's like Nessie what you eating for lunch and she's like ah my child prodigy sit down sit down and she's like eating a salad right and he was like so I kind of want to do something a little bit suicidal and she's like don't tell me you hate it here no I kind of want to see if I could talk to Joe and she immediately looks at him with so much anger like he has never seen her that angry and she's almost always angry and so he's like what the fork right and she's leaning over the table and she's like what did you just say i think i want to maybe do some talk therapy with joe you don't know what you're talking about no i know he doesn't have a doctor right now so it's not like i'm stepping on anyone's territory i just want to like just one session if i can't do anything i can't do anything you don't know anything. You're a goddamn fool. Listen, let me tell you something. I go in there every single day to give him medicine. How long does it take me? Maybe, maybe 30 minutes. And every time I walk out of that room, I want to admit myself as a patient in here. Just so tomorrow, I don't have to give him his f***ing medicine. So you don't know what you're talking about. He's like, what? what? And she said, don't you ever think about it again. And don't you ever joke about something like that ever again. Don't ever joke about Joe. It's serious. And she was mad. So he was like, okay, yeah, you're right. And he made up two things in his mind that day. 
First of all, he wasn't going to talk to staff about Joe. Second of all, he was going to fix Joe. He's going to cure Joe. Because, I mean, honestly, this is almost personal now. Like, if all of the staff was feeling that much discomfort, then someone had to help Joe. Why work in misery when you could just cure a patient? Duh. And so he's like, all right, I got it. So he decides to look up Joe's record. No, he didn't even know his last name because people don't even put Joe's last name on the charts because they don't want you looking into Joe's past. So it's just written as Joe. So he looks at his medical chart and it's only, it's literally paper thin, which is weird because he's been there for over two decades. And he realizes that there's only one year of the last data and there's no doctor's notes. There's no diagnosis. There's no therapy. It's, so it's just a list of medicine that he's on and that's it. And so he's like, okay, I need to go into the records room so he goes down into the records room and he signs in and he starts looking at any joe that he can find and finally he finds a file which honestly wasn't as thick that as he thought it would be disappointed you know and it was a real thin one and <laughs> And so he takes the file out and he starts reading it in the records room because he doesn't want to be caught stealing something like this. And so he's reading it and it looks also like nobody has opened it in decades. Now this is what we can gather from the records. So Joe was six years old, 20 something years ago when he was admitted into this hospital. And that was back then when this hospital was not so terribly underfunded. They actually like 20 something years ago, state run hospitals had some of the cream of the top doctors. Like they had good doctors. They had Ivy League doctors. Not saying you have to be good to be an Ivy League doctor, right? Or you get it, vice versa. <laughs> I guess you do. Or sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's dead as money or whatever. Um, what was I saying? So, I mean, back in the day, they just could afford a lot of more, like, um, on the record, better doctors, okay? That's just... I'm, there's that one person who's like, my mom works at a state-run hospital and she's the best doctor and she cares about all her patients, so go to hell. I hate you. That's not what I mean. It's a fictional story. I don't know how state-run hospitals are, okay? Continuing on. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> Grandmama. Grandmama. And so he was admitted in when he was six years old for night terrors. He was so scared and he said, listen, I don't know what to do. Every time I go to bed, there's this giant monster on my wall who keeps trying to kill me. And every time my parents come in, it just like goes away. And he just didn't know what to do. He said that it was kind of like this weird worm slash fly so like the head was like a worm but it had a million eyes like a fly and then the body was like a spider and it was just a mix of all of these insects which again is really common when you're six years old and you show signs of um i forget the word but it's a real phobia which is intense fear of bugs like when you're young you look at a spider like you faint it's not even just like ah spider mom right like you're like about to pass out. And they thought that he had a very small condition of that, like he had that small phobia. It wasn't intense, but it was there. And so he had maybe concocted this crazy imaginary creature to come kill him in the middle of the night. And of course, just like all the other kids' imaginary monsters and friends, they disappear when the parents come and check on the wall. And so the doctor tells him, listen, it's in your imagination and all of that, yada, yada, yada. And that kid was ended up giving sedatives and released that night because I mean, he was like, you know what? You're right, doc. I just didn't hear about it like that. And then a couple days later, he was readmitted. And this time his arms were bloodied up. So the parents said that they found him the next morning and he had all of these cuts on his arms and they brought him in immediately because they don't know what happened. And the kids said that that, that bug, that monster, 
um, he went like this in the middle of the night because he didn't want to look at the monster. He was like, this monster is too scary. And so he covered his eyes and his monster wanted to look into his eyes. And so he used his little spider claws to take the hands away from his face and used his antennas to keep his eyes open like this. Uh-huh. And so the doctor's notes write down his story, but they also write down possible self-harm, possible sociopathic tendencies, right? All of these things that they're noticing in this kid's behavior. And so the next morning, he stayed in the hospital. He was never released, by the way, Joe. This is like 20 plus years now, right? But that was the second time he went to the hospital and never left. So the next morning, he wakes up from the sedatives inside the hospital, and it's like a completely new kid. He was not communicating with words. He was only clicking and hissing, like, and like hissing at people, like nurses who would come by, anyone who would come by. He would violently try to punch nurses. He would try to kick nurses. A nurse had a surgery done on her shin, and he tried as hard as he could to kick her in the shin multiple times, where then she sat him down and was like, you can't be a bad boy, okay? And she walked away, and he would just click and hiss. He wouldn't talk to anyone. He wouldn't talk to the therapist. It was just weird so then the next day the therapist was able to get him into his you know office and was talking to the kid and he noted down by the way his name is dr thomas and dr thomas noted that he had insane antisocial personality disorder aka sociopathy he was a sociopath but he said it was far too sophisticated for someone his age and his development so the way that it works means that when you're a sociopath when a doctor says that you're a sophisticated sociopath doesn't just mean like oh you're like a extra sociopath like you're like uber duber sociopathic it just usually means there's almost no way that your brain could have developed this much sociopathic tendencies within six years Like, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't mean that you're like, oh my God, the most sociopathic, right? And so they said it was a little bit weird because this is typically unnormal, even in the most extreme cases of sociopathic kids. And that kid was sitting there just staring at the doctor as he's taking his notes. And he had said, I don't really like a drunk like you. And the doctor kind of looked confused and said, why did you say that to me? And he looked at him and said, why do you think? And the doctor let him out of his office and he wrote down in the notes that during his 20 years of sobriety, of being sober, he's never wanted to take a shot of anything as badly as he did within the 30 minutes that he was with that kid. He doesn't know how that kid knew that he was an alcoholic in the past. It's been 20 years that he's been sober. He doesn't know. And he says, I don't know what to do. I just know I cannot be this kid's doctor because I will go back to drinking. And so he passed on his assignment on this kid to a different doctor. And then we have about four years of notes that are missing. And all that was written in the doctor's notes during the next four years from him being six to 10 was do not give him roommates, keep him isolated, make sure only experienced staff are handling his room. And that was about it. And then when he turned 10 years old, there was a new note that was written into the system, which is the fact that this is when like the hospital was starting to get all of their budget cuts. So they were like, we need to give him a roommate. There's no way that he can just take up a whole room by himself 
now. Like, this is really bad. And so they had placed him into the room of an older gentleman who was um, very, very violent. He had a tendency to be sadistic, which means he likes to enjoy people in pain. And as we know already, Joe likes to push people's buttons. And we don't know who made that decision. The director of the hospital was raging at all of the doctors in the doctor's notes, saying, like, this is unacceptable because Joe was actually admitted into a general unit of the hospital for a broken arm, two broken, like, bruised ribs, a concussion, and a fractured skull. So he, 10-year-old Joe, had said something that was so incredibly bad that it just pissed off this dude, and he beat the out of him so they were like next time don't do that so the hospital took note and when joe was released from the general hospital he was taken back in and he was placed with a six-year-old by the name of nathan now nathan was in there uh, so he's 10 joe's 10 nathan's six nathan was in there for having extreme ptsd from sexual abuse from his own father and they thought that this would be a good match because both of them kind of kept to themselves and both of them just I don't know, right? They just put them together. And everything was going well for a couple months until at around 1.30 a.m., they heard screaming and the orderlies ran into the room and 10-year-old Joe was assaulting Nathan in the same way that his dad had, which just furthered his PTSD, obviously. So then they were like, we cannot let this happen. How did this happen? We need to have orderlies who are constantly checking up on Joe, right? And so his next roommate happened to be a teenage meth addict who had severe paranoid schizophrenia. So he was just paranoid of everything. He had hallucinations. And the reason that they chose him as a roommate is because he was many, many years older than Joe and he was physically much more built than Joe. So like, if Joe tried to do anything, he could just knock him out, right? And so they were like, okay, this is a good match. But in order to make it even more safe, they decided to put these leather straps on the bed. And every night when the orderlies weren't constantly watching on the two, they would be strapped when they sleep. And so the next morning, the note said, we can never have anything like this happen again. Because somehow the teenage meth addict, he had chewed out of his leather restraints and the hospital has no idea how, but he was able to push out the bars from the hospital window and he threw himself out the window. So they don't know what happened that night, but that kid had killed himself and they suspect it had something to do with Joe. I mean, this is a little weird. And so they were like, okay, so now we're gonna send in Frank the orderly. So Frank is an orderly and he was gonna go in with a tape recorder and Joe was gonna be restrained in the leather straps and he's not a big kid, he's very, very thin. And so he's gonna be restrained all night and Frank would sleep there at night to see like if anything was happening and he would have a tape recorder and Frank was this buff ass orderly dude, right? So they were like, okay, sounds good. And he was like, I got it, that kid don't scare me. And so he goes into the room and he runs out And he said that Joe was talking to him all night, like whispering these weird things to him all night. And he started to have this panic attack. He didn't know what to do. He was scared and it was bad. It was bad doctors. And they play the audio tape and they don't hear any whispering. They just hear, they kind of hear like a panic attack that was assumed to be Frank. And they were like, okay, this is weird, but obviously, Frank, it's gotten in your head. You know, like you're like, oh my God, like he just kind of, you know, pushed someone to jump out the window. So he must be this crazy kid. And then you're like sleeping the night in a mental institution. It's obviously in your head, Frank. So they were like, okay, why don't you, you know, go home for the night and we'll talk about it again. And within a couple of days, Frank was also hospitalized in a mental institution. He was very upset that nobody believed that the whispers 
were happening, but he was on the other side of the room, and if Joe was whispering anything that even Frank could hear, the tape recorder would have picked it up. Like, it just doesn't make sense. It's not like they were laying right next to each other. It was on the other side of the room, so maybe it was all of, like, the rumors and what had just happened that got to Frank. Mm -hmm. Anyways, he was admitted into a mental institution, and that's when he was like, okay, he sees the doctor's notes, and the last note that says, to the future directors of the hospital do not assign doctors to joe do not put him with the rest of the population do not let orderly or nurses try to spend too much time with him he is an unsolvable case there is no hope do this for your own good and it was also written that like his parents are wealthy so they can afford his care they can afford for him to stay there i mean they can't afford like the biggest room or anything but they can afford for him to stay there and it also made a note that even if they stop paying find room in your budget do not release him and that was it he found the reference number to the audio tapes he went to the hospital recording office where they had all of the files the audio tapes specifically and they said that those audio tapes don't exist so he's like okay that's it like that was the end of the file and he goes home and he starts thinking about it and he can kind of understand why this would be such a hard case to diagnose so this kid Joe has extreme levels of differences in empathy. So he has something where he can feel no empathy for others. So he is an extreme sociopath. He doesn't know how to feel sorry when people are in pain. He doesn't know how to relate to that. However, he shows an extreme knowledge of cognitive empathy, which means that you know, you can identify exactly what people are feeling. So like I can exactly identify that you are feeling nervous, right? right now that you're feeling uneasy that you're feeling scared but I can't feel bad for you for feeling that so it was just a weird case and this was too developed this isn't super rare but it was too developed for someone who was six and he said to give you perspective the way that he read those files and the way that these doctors with medical knowledge saw it was that he had these weird skills of hitting people where it hurts of like a CIA interrogator, not some spontaneous six-year-old who read a book or is just a little mature for his age. Like it just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And so he's thinking about it all night. His fiance Jocelyn is like, hello, do I even exist right now? And so he was like, sorry, lots of things at work. And he goes to sleep that night and he has a nightmare. Now this is a nightmare that he's always had since he was young and it goes a little something like this. So he walks into the hospital and it's just, it's just him. And he knows who else is here. There's no doctors, there's no nurses, there's no orderly, there's no other patients. He knows the only other person in the hospital is his mom because she's calling his name. And so she, he's walking through the hospital towards her room. And when he opens the door, it's not his mom. It's like this giant creature who just has maggots inside of her. And just she's got all these bruises and cuts. And she keeps you know, calling his name, Parker, Parker. And then she walks over and gives him a hug and he has, he's feeling all these maggots running across his body. And then she starts cackling, she starts laughing. And then he wakes up, he has this nightmare all the freaking time, okay? So he's like, God, this case is like already getting to me. So as he's driving to work that next day, he's like, okay, listen, here's the plan. I'm gonna talk to my boss. So his boss has a boss, but he got a boss. His name is Bruce, Dr. Bruce. So he's like, I'm gonna go up to Dr. Bruce and I'm gonna be like, here's the deal. You know, I'm gonna fix Joe, I promise you. And if I don't, you can fire me, you can do whatever. Like he's practicing this whole speech. And as he pulls up to the hospital, it's 
filled with reporters, police cars, ambulances. And he's like, what the fork? And he runs out of his car and he sees a bunch of nurses and orderlies standing by. So he's like, what happened? What happened? And they're looking so shocked. They look at him and they say, Nessie. And he sees a body bag being transported out of the hospital. And he's like, what happened? I don't know. She was working the night shift. She gave all her patients their meds, went up to the roof, and then jumped off. No. And so he walked back into that hospital, and now it was personal. Because it seems like it was Joe that made her suicidal. That's what she talked about. Everyone was shocked. The last patient she gave medicine to on her night shifts was always Joe. So now it's a personal thing. Now he's gonna fix Joe. Because there can't be more people who die because of Joe. Because people are incompetent to diagnose Joe. And so the rest, the couple of weeks after Nessie's death, I mean, he couldn't even bring up Joe to anybody because all of the police were going in and out of the hospital, just questioning everyone, trying to make sure, was this a suicide or was this like a work-related hostile homicide? You know, did a colleague push her off? Did a patient escape and push her off? All of these things. And on top of that, like Nessie was the one who held down the fort. So everybody was just like, I got a call off today. And like nobody could keep their schedule. It was a shit show in the hospital. So finally, when it calmed down, he decided, decided to write his boss, Dr. Bruce, a nice little letter. And it said, listen, Dr. Bruce, I've decided to pick up more weight around the hospital now that Nessie's gone. I hope you will appreciate that. Here are some patients I would like to add to my roster just to take some weight off of you so that you can better, you know, do what you do. Do the fancy stuff I can't do, which is to lead, you know. So here's a list of patients. So it's a bunch of random patients and then Joe. So he's like, okay, this is going to work. So he leaves the letter on his boss's desk, and then he gets a page to come into the boss's office immediately. And so he's rushing up in there, and he's like, okay, this is my speech. He's got his whole speech ready. And he opens the door, and Dr. Bruce is like, you and your fucking goddamn ego, you better sit down. You are lucky I'm not firing you today. Don't you ever bring up Joe in my office ever again. You think because you're some Ivy League, ooh, you're so fancy that you can go and cure the world. You need to sit your ass down, okay? You haven't even been here for enough time. You don't know what the f*** you're talking about. You're an idiot. You're just like this giant ego. I'm the king of the kings, doctor. Sit your ass down. And that's when the door opens and the director of the hospital, Dr. Rose, which was this very stern-faced older woman who walked in and she looked very scary, okay? She immediately was like, don't f*** around, right? She walks in, slams the door shut and she says, Bruce, out now. And he looks a little bit conflicted and he's like, you don't know what he's talking about. And she's like, I do, so get out of his own office. So he's like... He gets up and Dr. Bruce looks back and this time he doesn't look angry. And he says, you were doing okay work around here, kid, okay? Now you're just going to go fuck it up. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't want to do this. Your other patients need you. And he walked out. So he's like, that's a little weird. And so Dr. Rose sits down and she's like, okay, you want to be Joe's doctor. I know that. Everyone's told me that. It's been reported to me. There's nothing in this hospital that I don't know about. So tell me. Have you tried talking to Joe? No. I, I, I thought I couldn't talk to Joe. Why? It's not like his door is locked. You have the key to all the doors. He doesn't have a special key to his door. Did you try to talk to him? No, I guess I just... So you were scared because of what everyone was saying. No, I just didn't. I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to get fired, okay? That's why I didn't talk to him. Did you read his files? 
No. If you're going to lie to me, then this meeting is over. I read his files. Okay, so what do you diagnose him with? A sociopath, um, a very sophisticated sociopath, sadistic personality disorder, he likes to see other people in pain, maybe psychological pregaria, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, by the way. It's kind of like this gene mutation where you end up aging really quickly. So a lot of the times it's found physically. So usually people who have this disease live till like their mid-20s, but sometimes it can happen just to the brain. So maybe that could explain his sophistication in his sociopath, you know, stage. And possible ability for shared psychosis, which is rare but it's not impossible i mean you hear about the twins who share psychosis and the same delusions and they jump into running traffic together without saying one single word to each other about their plan and maybe he has an ability to share his psychosis with those that get to know him really well maybe his delusions are so strong that they pass on to those nearby which again rare but not entirely impossible well you're wrong because you haven't read his file I literally just told you, I, I confessed to you that I read his file because you thought I was lying. Well, you haven't read his full file. See, I keep his file in my office because I know that all the new doctors, they get a little curious, they go into the record room, they pull up Joe, and I keep a very, very short version in there so that people will get scared and then they won't try to treat Joe. And usually it works, except for you. It's because you think you're a smart ass. Why do you think I'm not letting Joe have a doctor right now? Um... I don't know, maybe what happened in Nessie, if, if doctors are dying, then the hospital could be liable. Maybe, maybe you don't want Joe to get worse? Why would Joe get, maybe, maybe people trigger Joe, and if Joe were to hurt himself or hurt someone else, then again, the hospital would be liable, and you being the director of the hospital, I guess you would have interest in not being legally liable for things like that. Unless, unless, unless maybe it's weirder, maybe, maybe he's got some sort of like contagious disease you don't know about. Maybe if people talk to him in the short term, like giving his medicine, it's fine. But maybe in the long run, spending copious amounts of time with someone like Joe would result in some sort of contagion. I, I don't know. Why don't you ask me what happened to the doctors who have treated Joe? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, nobody's really treated him since like the 70s. No, because you don't have the full file. He's actually had a lot of doctors. I myself was one of them. So they go up into her office and she unlocks a cabinet in her office and she pulls out this thick manila folder, which is his real file, Joe's real file. And he's looking around her office and he sees just Ivy League diplomas, residencies at some of the top hospitals in the nation and she's like yeah I mean this was when state funding was great back in the day and so she sits down and she says I was his next doctor so after Dr. Thomas he was passed on to my table and honestly I thought it was a waste of time I was like listen this is a kid with night terrors you sedate him he has fear of insects maybe some exposure therapy he's a sociopath you just do some talk therapy maybe some hypnotherapy and I thought it was a waste of my time I was the smartest kid in this hospital why would you put a moot six-year-old who probably already has a diagnosis treatments even easier on the most valuable doctor on your team so I was mad and then I took his case and four months into it I went into the medical supply room and I tried to take a bottle of pills I ended up being in a private institution for a little while 
I came back, and there was a new doctor on Joe. So the new doctor lasted a couple months, and then one day just didn't show up for work. So we filed a missing persons report, and the police went to the doctor's house, and they said that it seemed like he was having a psychotic break. And I say it seemed like it because when they opened the door, the doctor ran out at the police with a knife in his hand. So they shot him. So we don't know. Joe's fourth doctor went into catatonic shock. So we had to admit her. And she, within a month of staying in a mental institution, ended up slitting her throat. Joe's fifth doctor, we decided this time, okay, we need someone tougher, right? We, we can't have like a cute little nurse. We can't have like a cute little doctor around here. We need someone who can really handle it. So we found a doctor who has military background. They were actually a doctor for the military. They are very stern, no-nonsense type of person. And they also worked in a state hospital, not just a state hospital, but a state hospital for the criminally insane. And so we hired him. He lasted 18 months. And then randomly, he sent in a one-sentence resignation letter. And we found him in his house with a bullet to the head. Oh, my God. So what do you diagnose someone whose madness seems contagious? And you think you're smart. And we all thought we were smart. But I've seen that madness go over to me, but also some of the best colleagues I've had. So what makes you think you can do it? And so he convinces Dr. Rose that he's not going to off himself. And he says that he's genuinely going to be open and honest with her. If he can't handle it, he's going to stop. Just give him one chance. And so she says, okay, but try not to kill yourself. And if you decide to do that or quit, come to my office first and tell me everything. And so he was like, hell yeah. So he left her office. And within a couple of weeks, it was going to be his first time to meet Joe. Now he walks into that room, he scans his ID card to have access to the patient room, and he enters, and he was kind of disappointed. Like, from what everyone was saying, he was expecting almost like a Halloween-type room with just, like, scratches on the wall, blood everywhere, like, that that's barely cleaned, and just, like, the smell of urine, like a shit show. He was expecting, like, a wild animal of some sorts. But he was just sitting at his desk. He was really, like, short, maybe five foot six, really thin, almost too thin. He's got, like, this really skinny face and, like, a tiny little voice, like a low voice. So he's like, what the heck? I mean, also, that's stupid that he was expecting anything, right? Okay, so he's like, Joe. And he turns around and he says, you look young. Is that a problem? No, it's just you must have done something really bad for you to end up in my room. He's like, no, I, I wanted to be here, Joe. And he's like, oh, sure. Or you really fucked something up, huh? Okay, <laughs> this is a little weird. He's kind of comical. Like the way that Joe is handling this interaction is kind of light. Like, you know, to be so self-aware that nobody wants to be his doctor is, he was kind of decently surprised. Mm -hmm. So he's like, interesting. So he sits down and he starts talking to Joe. And he was like, yeah, well, that bitch would send in anyone who she wants to fire. So what do you do? He's like, what? You know that bitch, Dr. Rose. Every time she wants to fire anyone, she sends them into this room. And they try for months to diagnose me, nothing happens, and then she fires them. It's like a trend. Fires them? Yeah, she doesn't want anyone to make her look bad. And having a new doctor on me makes me seem like a long-lost case, and then my parents just keep turning over more money to her. It's the plan, so what'd you do? 
Or maybe you took the bait. Maybe you thought you could be my little savior. And he says, okay, Joe, why don't you help me out here? What do you think is wrong with you? How the hell would I know? As far as I'm concerned, it seems like everyone else around me is going mad. And honestly, I think sometimes people are doing it on purpose to make me go mad. How could I tell you? You're the doctor. You try diagnosing me. So many have tried. Nothing's working. You, are you not putting two and two together? Rose is literally doing this on purpose. She's keeping me here. I am not sick. I came in here when I was six for some stupid nightmares I had. And every time she wants to fire someone, they get sent into my room and they can't diagnose me. And these doctors know that she's keeping me in here sane because I'm probably the best source of revenue for this hospital right now. And they go crazy and they, they decide for months, should they go to the medical board about it? Should they tell the boss's boss? Who's the boss's boss? Should they go to the government about it? But then every time they try to do it, it doesn't happen. So they lose their minds and they kill themselves, okay? What? Yeah, why do you think no one can get a diagnosis? Maybe there's nothing wrong with me. So you're telling me that they're keeping you here for revenue? How do you diagnose someone who's sane? Think about it. You can't. And doctors are smart, so they realize that the hospital is keeping someone who's obviously sane and saying that they're this crazy, mentally ill person for over two decades. And once they find out, they either feel so much guilt that the medical industry is so corrupt, or maybe they realize that nobody's going to listen to them, and if they try to say something, that this hospital is going to try their best to tank their career. And for someone who's never been diagnosed, how easy would it be for one other doctor to contradict your diagnosis? So all those things in the files. I don't even know what's in my file, doctor. You know what's in my file. How would I know what's in my file? What about Nathan? I heard about Nathan. Nathan? Nathan was, Nathan was something else. Nathan was six and I shared a room with him and I was 10 and he told me that he can't go to sleep unless I hug him and he told me exactly what to do and it's what his dad did every single night and that's the only way he can go to sleep and so I did it. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 10. It wasn't until he was screaming because I, I guess I don't know how things like that work when I'm 10 that people thought I was assaulting him. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I came in here when I was six. I didn't have, I didn't have the bees and the birds talk, okay? Okay, so then he decides to just talk to him the rest of the 45 minutes. And he seems like a normal dude. I mean, he's starting to pick up on some cues. The fact that he remembered Nathan's name was a little bit interesting because his experience with sociopaths is that they remember the crime and they remember the pain that they inflicted on someone, but they don't really care about identities of people. They don't really think about, oh, her name was this. They usually are like, oh, this was that experience of feeling this pain that she, you know? So it was a little bit weird. There was another moment where a bird flew by and hit itself on the window. And most of the kids or adults that he saw with sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies would have giggled or not even realized that that happened. But he walked over to the window and he looked shocked and he kept looking down to see if the bird would fly back in the middle of the conversation. So it seemed like all of these little things that are really hard to fake when you're a sociopath, mm -hmm. especially when you've been in an institution your whole life and you haven't been outside like gathering data about how people show empathy 
was really strong. So he's like, okay, this is weird. So he leaves the room and he wasn't afraid of Joe. He almost felt like maybe this was weird. I mean, what could he do? Think about it. If Joe is telling the truth, what are the implications of that? The hospital is never going to let go of their cash cow. And what are the implications of a state-run hospital keeping someone there because their parents have enough money to send them money? Well, what would that be? Who would he even approach for something like that? How could he even confirm that theory? Especially when on record, he's known as this crazy psychotic kid, right? But on the other hand, if this is a story that Joe made up and maybe he caught Joe on a good day, maybe Joe decided he was gonna pull all his strings and make it seem like he's a normal person, then Joe needs so much help because he's so good at pretending to be genuine. He took down his notes and if this was not any other background patient that he had no background information on, if Joe just walked into his office today, he would diagnose him with not even sociopathic disorders or any personality disorders, but mild depression and agoraphobia, which he doesn't want to go outside. He's a little scared of the outside, which is reasonable for someone who's been locked up for over 20 years. So that, that was weird. That night he goes home, Dr. Parker, and he starts pouring through the notes. And and he, re he listens to the audio tapes that Rose had taken out of Frank, the orderly who was staying there. He didn't really hear much. Again, he heard Frank's panic attack and nothing else. But again, this was from the 70s. So how reliable could the cassette be after so many years? And then of the first session was Dr. Thomas. And it just sounded like Joe, as he does today, is kind of like a scared, timid kid. It's very consistent with how he talked to Joe today. It's not this angry, violent person all these other notes are saying he is. He just sounds like almost hopeless and just like, ah, what the heck? And he decides to go over the rest of the notes that he hadn't read yet. So he goes over Rose's notes, Dr. Rose's notes, and her notes were exactly as he thought it would be but a little weird. Her notes weren't thorough. None of the doctors were. Most of the doctor notes just seemed like grounds for a malpractice lawsuit. None of them had detailed anything. None of them had detailed experiences, conversations, or anything like that a doctor would usually take note of. Nothing that they said that they wrote down. And Rose's notes was also like that. She would write things like, you know, this is a waste of my time in her journal. And then it went to, oh, I'm excited to try this therapy with him. Cool, it's gonna be great. And that was about it. And then suddenly, a random suicide note from Rose, Dr. Rose. So he was starting to think maybe Joe's story makes sense because almost immediately after this happened, Dr. Rose was given the director position. So maybe she was, maybe she was in on it with Dr. Thomas because nothing else was taped except for that first session with Joe where he sounded like a scared kid and then the rest was just Dr. Thomas's note saying this is the most evil kid ever and then he passed it on to his favorite student doctor Dr. Rose and then she made up this crazy story that he's psychotic and she tried to kill herself and then she was promoted to being director because it was time for Dr. Thomas to retire Maybe she had secured this patient as a source of funding for the hospital and was rewarded. That wouldn't seem too crazy for a hospital like this. I mean, he grew up having to deal with his mom's, you know, institution, and they're all sleazy. They just care about keeping the lights on. That would make sense. And all the other doctors, none of them have precise notes. What are the odds? 
and he starts visiting Joe and more, more and more. And every time Joe's just, he's not necessarily pleasant, but he's never angry or violent. He's just kind of like hopeless. Like, it is what it is. You can't do shit for me, dude. It's fine. Like, we can sit here. You're probably going to get fired for not being able to diagnose me. Or you're going to go crazy because you know that the hospital is keeping me sane. I don't know what to tell you, okay? Like, he would just kind of be like, I don't know. I've been through this for two decades. I don't know what to tell you. Like, you're the doctor. And he was just like, what is happening? And then he started thinking, you know, Nessie was scared of Joe. But Nessie was never suicidal. She had kids at home that she loved. And so he asked Joe, what happened the night Nessie died? I was excited that night. She said she would get me out. She was doing my meds every day for years now. And because no other doctor had talked to me for years, she said that she was going to talk to the doctors and tell them I'm doing great. And to maybe even ease me into hanging out with the rest of the patients just to prove that I'm really adjusting well. And so she promised. And then, and then that happened. And he started crying. And so, I mean, obviously, he might just be crying for the fact that he can't get out, which is normal. But it did make sense. Because Nessie was not suicidal. Maybe Nessie found out what the hospital was doing. And one of them pushed her off the roof that day. He can't really explain it, but he knows something's wrong with the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so he comes up with this plan. And this had been months of talking to Joe. And not one second did he see anything weird with Joe. Again, he's not the best pleasant person, but he's definitely not a sociopath. He's not a sadistic person. With months of talking to him, he would have seen it. I mean, this is a doctor. This isn't just like a random person you meet on the street who's like, oh my God, you can't be a sociopath because you're nice to me. This is a doctor who's literally looking for those tiny little signs that something's wrong with you. So he was like, there's nothing wrong with him. And there's no way that I can keep him locked up in here. But if I go out and tell anyone with those doctor's notes on the record, he's never going to be released. And it's just not going to work. So he he decides to do a crazy plan. He said in a couple of weeks, he's going to leave his coat in Joe's room with his key and in the pocket is going to be a printed map of the hospital. And when he leaves, he's going to pull the fire alarm and Joe's going to leave. Now Joe is going to go the other way while the other patients are being evacuated. Joe is not known to evacuate, like he's not known to be a runaway. So no one's going to be looking for Joe and no one, no nurse, no orderly, no doctor is ever going to be accused of letting Joe escape. Because it's Joe. Nobody likes Joe. And so he's like, okay, that's the plan. So the next couple of weeks, he's like, I need to make sure that this is the right idea. Because if it's not, I'm releasing God knows who into the society, right? So he keeps talking to Joe. And he's like, what about your parents? Why don't they come and visit you? You know, did you do something to them? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, my parents are part of like the prep school America. I mean, the minute that they found out that I was broken they just didn't really care i mean yeah they keep me alive but they didn't really care my dad was he was something else my mom never liked me i wasn't allowed to have pets i really wanted a cat and my dad was allergic so there's this one stray cat she was nice she was really cute and so i would go out into the garden and i would always leave little food for her like canned tuna and so she would stop by a lot i would bring a book and i would read with that cat because i just didn't get along with my parents and then one day my dad saw me and he came out and he drop kicked the cat into the woods behind our house. And I was so upset because 
I was the reason that the cat didn't run away because it's a stray cat. So it was really scared of humans at first. And then I kept giving her food and I kept spending time with her. And then she wasn't scared of humans. So when my dad came towards us, she didn't even think about running away this time. And then my dad started beating me in the garden. My mom ran out and said, don't let the neighbors hear, don't let the neighbors see. And then my dad turned around and punched her in the face. And she had a black eye for two weeks. And what's weird is like, I feel like my mom thought it was my fault that she had a black eye. Because ever since then, she would always look at me like everything was my fault. So I don't think they really care to visit me. And I don't think I really care too much about it either. What a detailed story. Yeah. And the cat's name was Fig Bottom. Because <laughs> apparently his, I don't know, the Fig Bottom word was weird. So his cat's name was Fig Bottom until she was drop kicked into the woods. So then he leaves. Dr. Parker leaves that room and he's like, you know, that is a really detailed story, which usually indicates is genuine or, or is like, this dude's insane. Wait, so the doctor thought about that too? Yeah, but he's like, you know, but everything else doesn't lean towards that. And so he's like, okay, this is going to be the great escape. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for Joe. I mean, usually when you're a sociopath, you have no feelings towards animals. And he was showing genuine sadness for that cat. So he decided to do the great escape. So that day he goes into Joe's room and Joe's like, you're crazy. What are you doing? And he's like, it's never going to work. It's okay, Joe. I'm going to go ring the fire alarm and you run. This is, this is dumb. You could literally lose your license. It's okay, Joe. I trust you, okay? And then he gave him a hug, and as he was about to run out of the room, a big buff orderly grabs him and slams him into the wall, and Dr. Bruce comes walking down the hall with another orderly who runs into Joe's room and grabs his lab coat, and he starts getting dragged. Dr. Parker away. And they're like, what were you trying to do, huh? And he was like, you guys are keeping a sane patient here for money. This hospital is corrupt. You guys are keeping him here for money. This is the most corrupt institution ever. He's screaming this as he's getting pulled, dragged down the hallway. And that's when he hears it. And he doesn't know if it's the adrenaline. But he hears a laugh. But that laugh is weird. It's his mom's laugh in his nightmare. So he's like, okay, I must be losing it, right? It's the adrenaline of like getting caught doing this. He gets dragged into Dr. Rose's office, slammed onto the ground. And in that office are two doctors, Dr. Rose and this really old dude. And that's when he realizes that must be Dr. Thomas, Joe's first doctor and Dr. Rose, the only other doctors that have survived Joe. And so they're looking at him just frowning and they're like, what were you thinking? And they look at each other and they start talking and they're like, okay, so probably what he was doing is he found out that Dr. Parker has this obsession with helping people that can't be helped. Something to do with his mom? We looked at your records, Dr. Parker. This was Joe's method of torture for you. You can't help him just like you can't help your mom, okay? What are you talking about? You guys are the nasty ones. I know what both of you guys did. You guys were his first two doctors and, oh, coincidentally, the only ones alive. You guys are keeping him here for money. And anyone who speaks out, you're going to what? Try to convince people I committed suicide? My fiance would never buy it. She would never stop digging and you guys will be caught. I swear to you. And they're both just sitting there laughing at him. And he's like, don't you dare laugh at me. Uh How do you think we know about what you were trying to do today? I don't know. I think you had some orderlies follow me. 
Joe told us. Joe wanted to talk to Dr. Rose and told her all about your little plan to help him escape. Why would Joe tell you that? Dr. Thomas looks at Dr. Rose and is like, tell him the story. When I first came in and I was assigned Joe, I was annoyed. I thought he was a shit patient. I thought he was a waste of my time and I'm sure you read that in the notes. And then I was like, you know what? Maybe it'll be okay. And so I decided to come up with a treatment plan, some hypnotherapy, some exposure therapy, a lot of talk therapy, and he was getting so good. I think a part of him maybe saw me as a mom and because I grew up being bullied and I wasn't really close to any of my family or friends, I also kind of took him under my wing. There was a little bit of a maternal connection there. And for the first four months, it was amazing. He was happy. He was well-adjusted. He was so good with everyone. The nurses loved him. And I thought, you know, the way to prove it was to give him a cat that he was going to keep. And for the first week, if he could keep well care of that cat, he would be, you know, joining the rest of his patients. He would join group therapy. And then if the cat was still good, then we could talk about a potential release with his parents. And for the six days, he treated that cat like an absolute angel. And on the last day, I literally pranced on over to his room, so excited, and I opened the door. And that cat was dead. And it was decapitated. It had been tortured. And in the cat's blood on his wall, he wrote, Nosy Rosie which is what I was bullied with when I was in elementary school. I never talk about my past or anything personal with any of my patients, God forbid, a young kid like Joe. And he always knew me by my doctor's name. My first name's Rose. Nobody ever called me Rose. So I don't know how he knew that, but I broke. And I left that room and I tried to take a bottle of pills. I don't know why he killed that cat. I don't, he loved that cat. Dr. Parker's like, what was the cat's name? I don't know, Fig something? Fig bottom? Yeah. So Parker, what is your diagnosis for someone who can just almost like read your mind and taunt you with things that you were taunted with long time ago that you've never talked to him about? I mean, what is your diagnosis? That's why you're not his doctor. I'm still his doctor. So Dr. Thomas says this is his diagnosis. We think that Joe is a product of suggestiveness. So the first night that he came in here, we suggested that it was in his imagination. And then he was trying to hurt people. So then we suggested that he was a bad boy. A nurse said, you're a bad boy. Then he became a bad boy. And then another nurse called him a monster. And he became a monster almost. We also believe that his dad was sadistic and sexually assaulting him. So that monster in his room was a product of his trauma from his sexual abuse. And when we told him on his first night here that that monster was a product of his imagination and not something else and was actually inside of him, how do you think that that kid probably felt? Like a monster. But when you're six, you, your brain cannot think that you are a monster. You can't believe it. And so that's when he created a second personality inside of him that was the monster. And over time, that monster would get just more prevalent in his life. And we believe that his delusions were so strong. So the monster, when he first came in, he would constantly say that his monster wanted him to feel bad. So that's why he kept his eyes open like this, remember? Uh -huh. And now that monster truly believes 
that he wants other people to feel bad. And now he believes that that monster is within him. Okay, but that still doesn't make any sense. Okay, first of all, that doesn't make sense. Dr. Parker's like, that doesn't make sense to me. Okay, first of all, we have no proof that his dad was sexually abusing him. That's a big claim. We don't just like hypothesize these things. And that sounds crazy. It almost sounds as crazy as if there was like a real monster here. Have you guys tried like an exorcism? He's just like desperate at this point. And Dr. Thomas is like, how dare you in the name of science bring... Dr. Rose is like, okay, just... We tried one. We brought in a priest and we tried one. But the priest midway through ran out in tears, refused to finish anything, and we never took down any notes because we'd be the laughing stock of the medical community for trying to perform an exorcism. We don't even know if legally that would be correct back then. But none of this makes sense. We know Dr. Parker, and that's why you're taking off his case. No, just let me, let me try one thing, okay? I know it's gonna sound crazy, but I wanna try talking to his parents. I wanna go to his house. And if his dad or his parents show any sign of like a hidden sadistic relationship filled with sexual abuse, I feel like I could probably see it or like any sign of it, any inkling. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. I have, this is literally what I was, I studied this. This is my life. I, I'm sure I can find it. Just let me do that. And if I'm wrong, if I, there's nothing, then yeah, you're right. This is his diagnosis. He was sexually abused and he's prone to suggestiveness. Maybe he has some sort of other disorder, but just give me one chance. And maybe it's even good for the hospital because then the parents will think we care so much. So they think about it and they let him go. So the next day, he starts driving to the expensive part of Connecticut. And he's like, God damn, these houses are big. And that also brings up the question, if they're this rich, why? Why keep him at a hospital like, like CSH that's so underfunded? And so he approaches the house and he walks in and the parents were expecting him, but it's just the mom. And she said that the dad has died 10 years ago and please come in. What? So she escorts him into the living room and he sees just lots of taxidermy on all the walls, like lots of moose, lots of other things. And he sees this one that's like a nightmare. It's got this like bulbous head, like a million eyes on it. And he's like staring at it and his mouth is open. And she's like, I know, awful, isn't it? What is that? It's, um, it was for Joe. We had an artist come and draw the monster he saw on his wall. And we had this commissioned and his dad came home one day and said, see Joe, your monster can't hurt you anymore because I hunted it down and I killed it for you. Didn't really work, obviously. Um, what? But I, I kept it up there because it reminds me of both of them in a weird way. Anyways, do you have any questions for me? I, I, I will do anything to help my little Joe. So he says, okay, um, just looking around, I know this is rude, but why CSH? And she said, I know. So we wanted Joe to go to a bunch of prep schools in Connecticut. And they they know all the hospitals in the area. They're all interconnected. Some of the people on the boards of prep schools are part of some of the best institutions in Connecticut. So we thought maybe we could take them to CSH, pay a bunch of money to keep it hidden, and he would still have a clean record for his prep school applications, which was dumb in hindsight because he never left. But by that point, we were advised that any other change of scenery would be hard on Joe. So we just kind of kept him there. And when did all of this start? 
Well, we moved into this house when Joe was five, and I was pregnant with his little sister, and we decided that he was going to get his first big boy room. He was going to sleep all by himself, and so we let him pick out the color of the walls, the bed, everything. He had so many toys. Everything was done perfectly. We had an interior designer help, and he laid eyes on that room, and he absolutely loved it. He was so excited, and the first night that he slept in that room, he woke up screaming, said that there was this monster on the wall, and of course, him being five, we we thought, you know, this is just him being scared to sleep alone. And so we made him sleep alone a little more and he just could not sleep. He just screamed all night, cried all night. So then we hired a nanny to take over and we told the nanny to wear him down, just make him run around all day so that at night he'd be so tired he'd knock out, wouldn't have a dream, wouldn't have a thought in sight, would just be a tired little five-year-old kid. And at first she was a good nanny. And then one day we saw her just like screaming at things, like not even people, just screaming, talking to walls and screaming at them. And so we were like, okay, um, maybe she's tired from all this Joe nonsense. So we fired her and it just kept happening more and more. And then we took him to the hospital for his first visit and he came back and in the car, he was so excited. He said, mom, dad, I learned today, it's all in my brain. I'm gonna tell the monster it's in my brain and I'm gonna, tonight, the monster's gonna come out and I say, you're not real, you're in my brain. And so we were so excited, we were so happy. And so that night he goes to sleep, he's so excited and we hear this tiny little eek in the middle of the night. And we go to the door and we were expecting more screaming because usually his nightmares, oh God, he screams and the whole neighborhood can hear him. But that was it. So we thought, okay, we're going to let him deal with it because that was probably him, you know, giving up his heroic effort. And the next morning we opened the door and there was just blood everywhere. And he was bleeding from his arms and he was looking so shocked. He wouldn't even tell us what happened. So we brought him into the hospital and that was that. Do you mind if I see his room? Yeah, I mean, I, I kept it exactly the way it is, just in case. So they went up to the fourth floor, and they opened the door to his room. And it was a beautiful room. I mean, there was really no signs of, like, any sort of weirdness going on. And she said, that's the wall that he thinks the monster lives on. And it was this giant, like, plain wall, and it was an outer wall. So he starts looking, and she says, I, it's a little weird for me to be in here, <laughs> a little painful. So call me if you need anything and so she leaves and he's looking around and there's no signs of abuse or an infestation he was thinking maybe if there was you know unknown bugs that nobody could find and he had this immense fear of bugs that could drive him to insanity and he didn't find anything and he seems keeps looking and he's about to give up when he sees a part of the carpet in his room has lifted and so he looks and he peels it back and there's dried blood under and it leads to the wall where the monster's on. So he peels it back more and there's more blood. And so he calls for the mom and he says, can I open up this wall? Just trust me. And she's like, um, if you're his doctor and you think it'll help, fine. And so she brings him an ax and he bangs on the wall and keeps banging on it. And he opens it up and he sees the skeleton of a small child. And the mom comes over and she starts screaming and crying. And they both realize that that's Joe. So if that's Joe, who's the person in the hospital? 
So he says, call the police, call the police. She's screaming, crying. She calls the police. He's racing back towards the hospital and he makes it in and he reaches Joe's room. And Joe's standing there with a cricket smile, just smiling at him. And he's like, okay, something in him is telling him to go check up on Jocelyn. Something strong, his fiance. He's like, just go check up on your fiance. Like he just feels this weird, who is this person? I feel like they're fucking with me. Like he felt like he was going insane. And so he runs out of the hospital and all he can think about is Joe's stupid crooked smile through the window, just like this evil crooked smile. And so he runs out of the hospital and he makes it home and Jocelyn's fine. And so he's like, okay, I gotta go back to the hospital. And that's when he gets a page. There was an electricity power out at the hospital and the first couple of floors have been flooded for some reason and Joe escaped. Oh my God. And so he starts freaking out. And so the next couple of weeks, he's just literally on edge. Everyone's like, it's going to be okay. Like, he's not going to come after you. Joe's mom ended up dying. She committed suicide by jumping out of Joe's childhood window. What's weird is that there was no record in any report that he could find that there was any skeleton or anything else found in the house. They just reported it as widow, widower. The skeleton's gone? Yeah just dies. Dr. Thomas was found of heart failure by one of his housekeepers. He couldn't get a hold of Dr. Rose and nobody believed what was happening. And then one day, Jocelyn called from the police station. She had been assaulted coming out of the library. And so they decided to pack up all of their things and Jocelyn was really never the same. I mean, they moved way out of Connecticut. He doesn't want to disclose where because he doesn't know what's going on. Uh But They moved to a different state, they got married, and Jocelyn was just never really the same. Like, she dropped out of her, you know, PhD. She just was not, yeah. She was just stayed at home all the time, never wanted to make new friends. And then, you're probably wondering why he's writing this. Well, a couple weeks ago, Jocelyn found out that she was pregnant. And she came up to me frantically and she said, listen, I just need you to get that out in the world. I don't want my kid to live in a world where people like that or whatever that was are just out there. I need you to warn people, okay? Uh And how could I say no? Because this was the first time that Jocelyn didn't have a crooked smile on her face. What? What do you mean? Okay, so in the book itself, I changed the ending a little bit. In the book itself, Joe is some sort of like monster. He's like some sort of shape-shifting insect monster. And I was like, I don't like that shit. I'll fuck with it. I don't like it. It's not scaring me. So he's like a demon. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like that either. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be setting up for some psychological shit and then be like, and then he had 10 eyes appear out of his forehead and he was (laughs) staring at me like, you little bitch. You know? So So you changed it to what? But the crooked smile was still there. Everything was there. I only omitted the part where he knew that Joe was a monster. So even this, it seems like the ending, like either that monster is now living inside of Jocelyn or she's one of them. Um, We don't know. I see. But he loves Jocelyn too much. To kill her. To kill her or to say anything like that. I see. I thought they're going to have a baby and the baby's going to say, Daddy. There's a monster on the wall. That'd be so scary. That's why I don't feel with kids, okay? You know where I thought this was going? Where? This is very similar to Orphan. 
Oh, where they replaced the, the kid? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I thought They're, so, too. I was like, okay, I think, like, maybe it was, like, a twin yeah. that the parents didn't want to give up or something. I thought so, too, yeah. But yeah. then it went, like, here. And I was like, what? So the ending was a little lacking. Mm-hmm. I feel like I watched one of those... Creepy movies? Yeah, pretty good. How's the good. writing? The writing's good. The monster chapter... <laughs> I was kind of angry. Because, like, the monster would get, like, a weird voice and shit. And I was like, I hate those movies like um The Mist or whatever, where everything's so scary. I almost liked um The Bird Box because like you don't really see them. A lot of people like Bird Box. Yeah, but like I don't like it when like you have all of that set up and then suddenly you see like tentacles appearing in frame. I'm like, you better fucking stop. You better chill. That's a seafood boil. <laughs> Why y'all scared? Call some mukbangers. We coming. Tip -tip. Cut a tentacle off. Ding. Sorry. Anyways, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed today's story. I hope you guys didn't even notice the fact that this is a baking a mystery without any baking at all. And I'll see you guys tomorrow. That's him. If anyone's listening, that's him telling people that he's going to get rid of me.